I like to use a meat thermometer when I'm cooking meat. That makes sense, right? And I think it's the best way to get the biggest bang for the buck when you're cooking meat. You have to put that thermometer in and make sure you achieve the right temperature and make sure it's right and you're pulling it out of the oven, putting it back in or the smoker until it's ready. And uh, in many ways, I do feel this sermon needs to go back in the spiritual smoker. It needs a little bit more time, but uh, this happens to preachers. Most of us, we run out of time, don't we? <laughs> And so we rely upon God's grace. And I do pray he'll use it for our good and for his glory. So we're going to be in Philippians today. I would have you turn there with me. And we're going to skim through the first couple chapters. We're going to land in Philippians 3 to talk about 2023 and reaching forward uh, for Christ, spiritual goals will be sort of the emphasis of the message. But we'll be skimming over some of the context. I think it is important uh, by way of introduction. But before we begin to do this, let's again call upon the Lord and ask his help. Heavenly Father, we look to you for grace in our hour of need. We look for you to supply our deficiencies and to give us the immediate presence of the Holy Spirit as we both preach and hear your holy word. We pray more and more in 2023 you would conform us to the image of your glorious Son, Jesus Christ, in each of our lives, in each of our callings, in each of the specific circumstances you have placed upon us. May we ask each and every day and in each and every calling, what would my Lord have me to do? Give us progress and growth from glory to glory, Bless us in this hour to glorify you, to honor your Son. And we pray you would also do good in the lives of those who may not know you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you read Paul's letter to the Philippians, his love and affection for them is evident. He speaks of how these brethren are on his heart. And his love for them, his desire for God's blessing in their lives. The foundational members of this church, you'll remember from Acts 16 and Luke's record, actually an interesting foundation and an interesting start to the church there. This is the place where the Philippian jailer was saved, the one who almost committed suicide. This girl who was demon-possessed was, I would imagine, no doubt, with this congregation. God, through the apostle, cast the demon out of this girl who was being abused and used by men for profit and for money. And then there was an affluent seller of purple dyes, Lydia, who the Lord had saved. And with this motley crew began a church in Philippi. It was a church born by God's saving and miraculous power. That's how any church is born. The reason you are here is because of divine, miraculous intervention. If God didn't intervene in your life, you would not be found here this morning. You would be found as a sheep going your own way, whatever that way might be for you. It was also born through the suffering of the apostle, through the bruised body of the apostle. This is the place where he and Silas were beaten with many rods, we read, with many blows, we read, and thrown into prison. You'll remember this is the place where Paul and Silas in prison, after being beaten, were singing praises to the Lord were filled with grace and peace and joy that was divine. It's the only way you can explain it. And in the midst of suffering, knew the nearness of Christ, knew the fellowship of Christ, knew the power that he's going to speak of to the Philippians of Christ practically and experientially in his life. It was a beaten Paul could have avoided if he had simply claimed his Roman citizenship up front. 
but for some reason he did not claim it and he received the beating. And I think he received it out of love for these brethren to send a message to the authorities that when he left, be careful who you lay your hands on in this little group. And perhaps he endured that beating out of love for the church of Jesus Christ. So it's a place that was near and dear to his heart. And he's writing to these brethren with the desire, as we read in the first couple of verses of chapter 1, to see their Christ-like love abounds more and more. He wants them to grow in their love in real knowledge and all discernment that they may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. That's his passion. That's his desire for these brethren that they might increase in their love for Christ, in their love for one another. The commentator Douglas Moo says, and I I like what he says about this, Before talking to the Philippians about some matters that need an increase, he talks to God about them and tells them so. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. In chapter 1, Paul tells them about his experience under house arrest in Rome, his circumstances, and what does he say about them? They have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. The Praetorian Guard is aware of his imprisonment for the cause of Christ. In this, the apostle rejoices. God's people have heard of his imprisonment under house arrest and as a result are experiencing increased courage to preach Christ without fear. So his imprisonment has resulted in the increased courage of the brethren to serve the Lord. And he even points to the preaching of those who desire to preach in order to do Paul harm. And even when he hears of that, he rejoices. No matter why people are preaching Christ, I rejoice that Christ is preached. And he's filled with joy, as he writes to these Philippians, while in jail, while in prison. In fact, if he didn't say he was in prison, you would never know it by the tone of the letter. Because he's filled with such joy. He's filled with such peace. There's something in this man that shouldn't be there uh, for someone who has had his freedom stripped and doesn't know what a day is going to bring forth. But he points to all of these ways that his imprisonment has resulted in glory and praise to Jesus and the encouragement and filling of the church of Jesus Christ. And as with this example, he's going to give them several examples in the first two chapters of what loving the brethren looks like. And he unashamedly lays down his own example. And some would say, when you preach the word of God, people really shouldn't learn a lot about you as a preacher. I think Paul would disagree with that. Paul shares his example by God's power and grace of living for Christ. And he says to the people, follow me as I seek to follow the Lord Jesus. He's not saying, follow me because I'm as perfect as the Lord Jesus, or I can do for you what the Lord Jesus can do. But as I follow Christ, follow me. And we learn a lot about Paul through his letters, don't we? Because God, in his grace and mercy, filled this man to live a life that is worthy of our following. That we might be more like our Lord and Savior, ultimately. So right off the bat, it's a special, special letter. And he opens up his heart to his readers. And he talks about what's going on inside of him. What his passions are. What his desires are. Like if you want to learn about the Apostle Paul, what makes him tick? What drives him to get out of bed every day? And to do the things he, do, and to do the things he does. And to serve the way he serves. You're going to learn about that. He's going to open his heart to us in the letter. And that's what he does to the Philippians. And again, I think he's doing that to give them an example of of how they should think, of what they should be motivated by. See, that's what the Christian life is all about. It's not simply a matter of paying attention to outward behavior, 
But we're to have our motivations and our thoughts taken captive by Christ. We're to have our inner man conformed to the image of Jesus too, right? So, so as Paul thinks like Christ, then as Christ would have us think, and as Paul is motivated by Christ-like motivations, he's opening up his heart to give us an example of, of when we look within our souls, do we see these same things to some degree? Do we want for these things to be enlarged and to be expanded and to grow? These are the kinds of things we should want to grow and to expand in our souls and in our lives. And he sums up the way he lives in verse 21 of the first chapter. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If God spares me, he goes on to say, I will use my life for the blessing of the church and sinners. If I remain, it's good for you, right? Because I'm going to serve you, he says to the Philippian church. And I'm going to serve the church and I'm going to continue to give myself to the calling that the Lord Jesus has called me to, to be a, a slave and servant of him and a servant of the church of Jesus Christ. That's what life's going to mean for me. But if I die, I go to be with Jesus. Live for Christ now, I'll be with him then. This is Paul's worldview. It's his passion. It's his mission in life and his hope in death. And he's reminding them that his confidence, hope, and way of living ought to be followed. Verse 29 and 30, And that Jesus Christ has not simply called us to believe in him, but he's also called us to suffer for his sake. He's laying down his own example as one to follow. In chapter 2, Paul points to, to three other people as examples of how to love others as well. The first is, is the very obvious example and the pinnacle of all examples. It's the example the Apostle Paul looks to ultimately and is motivated by, and that is Jesus Christ himself. Do you want to have a good spirit within you, a good thought life, good motivation, a good way to think about your life in relation to other people? Have these thoughts in you which were also in Christ Jesus, right? And he gives the example of what Christ does in, in, chapter, in chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Have this attitude which was in him. Selflessly, with humility and with love, regard one another as more important than yourself. And look out for the interests of others, not simply your own. He moves on to point out the example of his faithful son in the Lord Timothy in verses 19 through 24. And he says to the Philippians, I'm thoughtfully and purposely planning on sending Timothy, Timothy to you shortly. Not now, but shortly I'm going to send you Timothy. Why Timothy? Why not other guys? He gives the reason because I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. Timothy is unlike them. In that he is passionately concerned about the interests of others. And he's genuinely and sincerely concerned for God's people. And I want someone like that to go to you and to help you. Someone with a proven track record of living for Christ and possessing genuine love for Christ's people. And then lastly, he points to Epaphroditus. This was the man bringing this letter back to the Philippians. And perhaps he was a... Uh, part of this church in verses 20, uh, verse uh, 25 through 30 of chapter 2, I'm sending him, that is Epaphroditus, now your messenger and minister to my need. I'm sending him back to you so that you will be comforted that he is okay, having heard that he was sick and almost died. And he writes of Epaphroditus, receive him with joy, verse 29, hold men like him in high regard. Look to him as an example. Why? Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. This is what Christ-like living looks like. This is what loving others and loving the church looks like. Follow these examples as they have followed our Lord and obviously and ultimately follow him. As we come to chapter 3, we're going to look at the first 14 verses with a special emphasis on 10 through 14, especially hopefully 13. 
Uh, the first nine verses, and we're going to go through these rather quickly to get to the main thrust here. The first nine verses, we find the Christian's confidence in Christ. So when we get to chapter 3, Paul continues with this theme of examples to follow. And he will use himself again, the way he lives and what goes on in his soul. We're going to go down deeper into the soul of the apostle. But he also reminds them of examples they should not follow. Beware of the dogs and the doctrine of dogs. That's what he starts off with. Philippians 3. Let's read those verses together, verse 1 through 9. Paul contrasts the teaching of the Judaizers with his own experience and his own confidence and faith. Look at verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And here's the big difference. And put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. See, he's going on to say, look, I've, I've been there where these guys are at. I have sought to live as they are telling you you should live. I have sought to find peace and joy by what I can do and by the works that I laid down for God in the service of God. And he's going to speak about that here. Circumcised the eighth day, verse 5, of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted loss, as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, which is what they're trying to get you to do, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul is not trusting in the flesh. Even though he lays out his example as one to follow for Christian living, he is not coming close in any of his writings to suggest that he is depending upon what he has done and in his example to make him right with God and to give him peace with God. He's not trusting in the flesh. He is contrasting those who trust in good works and what they do to make them right with God in law-keeping with simple faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the flesh represents here. Religious life. Laying down good works to store up favor with God. This is not his confidence before God. His acceptance with God is in Christ and in him alone. He's appealing to them. Do not believe and follow these dogs, these evil workers, and these mutilators of the flesh. Keep looking to Christ. Give up religion for Christ. Do not stop looking to Christ and start looking at yourself. Philippians, keep looking to Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The value of knowing Christ, he speaks of, compared to all these things. Now, the message today is all about reaching forward in 2023. It's a message designed primarily to help God's people, Christians, to help them press forward in serving Christ more and more, achieving spiritual goals, to the praise of God, for the good of others, for our joy, 
also to abound more and more. But you can't help reading about the confidence Christians have in Christ and Paul has in Christ without appealing to the unconverted this morning too. Are you a Christian today? Where are your priorities? What are you living for? If you were not saved in 2022 and aren't saved today, this is my prayer and the prayer of this church, that in 2023, it would be a year you stop looking at everything else and start living and looking to Jesus. The Judaizers in the passage represent the world preaching in your ear. Live for me, not Jesus Christ. Find happiness and joy in me. Not the Lord. The world whispering in your ears. The way of Christians is hard. It's no fun. There's no joy. There's no real life in that way. Come follow me. Has God said? Causing you to doubt what God says and question his word. Is there really life in Christ's name? Is there real fullness of joy in the presence of God? Trying to get you to doubt all that. And Paul says here in this passage that all that the world has to offer you when compared to Jesus Christ is rubbish. The value of knowing Christ is so huge that the best things this world could offer you, even with temporary pleasure, is is something that is useless garbage, worthy only to be put on the curb and taken out with the trash. That's how valuable knowing Christ is. Blessings in this life and in eternity in Jesus Christ. When Paul was saved on the Damascus Road, he immediately realized that the way he was living and the things he was living for were absolutely useless. Very interesting that this word rubbish in our passage could be translated dung, but it also could be translated according to Douglas Moo, more specifically as refuse, especially of the kind that was thrown out for dogs to forage through. So he suggests, and it makes sense, Paul is taking a parting shot at these Judaizers that he calls dogs in verse 2. Refuse or street filth might capture both the ambiguity, Moose says, and the vulgarity, indeed as foul-smelling street garbage fit only for dogs. So by this, Paul is giving us a picture here of the world in sin. These Judaizers and all who would try to capture your attention away from Christ are like dirty stray dogs picking through foul-smelling street garbage. That is what living for everything else is like compared to knowing Christ and living for Christ and enjoying the blessings of Jesus Christ. Whatever you give your heart to, whatever you're giving your heart to today is not ultimately, genuinely, and you can attest to this, bringing you the life it promised to give you. The inward satisfaction, joy, and blessing, and peace. Nothing can give that to you except the Lord Jesus Christ. Yesterday, I attended a memorial service of a young lady who passed away in northern New Jersey. It was a very special and sad service because she was only 49 years old. She died of cancer. And this past Wednesday, as we were at prayer meeting, and I'm sure you guys have the same experience, we get the prayer list, and there's tons of people on there, and we're praying for them. And guess what they have? Cancer. Or they have some rare liver disease, as one uh, member of our community has. Or a 15-year-old granddaughter is diagnosed with bone cancer, and the grandmother wants us to pray for her. And at 15 with bone cancer, the prognosis is not good. And I'm looking at this list and I'm saying, you know, the only answer and the only solution for these people's problems is Jesus Christ. If if that 15-year-old has a million dollars in the bank and never had to work 
a day in her life and it could afford all the pleasures the world could give her, it's useless to her because it can't heal her from the bone cancer. Rare liver disease means, guess what? There probably isn't a lot of treatments. People are faced with their mortality and with the fact that life is going to be much shorter than they anticipated. And they don't have time to give themselves to the things of the world. They're not even going to have the physical capacity and strength to enjoy the things of the world. And the only one that can help them in their hour of need is Jesus Christ. The one who can take away the root cause of all that disease and the root cause of all our problems, which is sin. And make us right with God and make us united to Jesus, a union that nothing can break. Death can't even separate God's people from Jesus Christ. And a promise of paradise upon closing our eyes in death. That's what these people need. They need to know that on the other side of that death experience, everything's going to be okay. And the only way they can get that is through Jesus, through Jesus Christ. He's the only way. We also heard the testimony of this young woman who passed away. They recorded a video of one of her sons. And she appealed to people, to her own children. What do you want for them? What are your goals for your kids and grandkids? And she unashamedly looked into the camera and said that they might know the Lord. He was the only one who helped me. When she got diagnosed six, seven years ago, and she said, you know, I tried to get relief in other things. Christ was the only one who gave me strength to deal with cancer and to face the consequences and the prognosis which ultimately took her life. The value of knowing Christ, right? So the goal for those of you who don't know Jesus is to turn from sin and look to Christ and believe in him and trust in him and be saved today. The Christian's hope in verses 10 through 14. Let's read about that a little bit. Verse 10, that I may know him. Paul continues to write in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as 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 having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What does the Christian look forward to? What is Paul's hope in the passage? It is certainly something that's governing the way he lives, isn't it? In many ways, it's hard to separate the Christian's hope from the Christian's way of living because the two are intimately connected. Well, clearly, Paul is living with an eye on the future. He's pressing towards something that he hasn't attained. And his future hope is talked about here in verses like verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's an event that's going to take place in the future. And for Paul, it still hasn't taken place. For all who have died in the Lord... For none of them it's taken place, but believers look forward to the day when Jesus comes back and their dead bodies are raised up from the grave, never to die again, to be imperishable and glorious, and to be given that inheritance that's undefiled and will not fade away. That glorious existence, we think about it and we imagine it with mystery, because we see through a mirror dimly, what's it going to be like to have bodies that aren't growing old, that don't feel pain? What's it going to be like to have an existence and an age in which there'll be no more weeping or mourning, death or dying, nursing homes or hospitals, grief? All of that will be part of the past, never a part of the present or future. We can't even fathom it because this world is so broken and our experience is so riddled with trial 
and with pain and difficulty, we can only imagine it, right? What's it going to be like? So there's this future that Paul is looking forward to, tied to the resurrection of his dead body. And he looks forward to that day that he might attain to it. So this is the hope of the Christian. We don't have to be afraid of the future. We don't have to be afraid of what's going to happen tomorrow or most importantly, when we die. It's an amazing blessing and part of the value of knowing Christ is that we have a peace when we think of our death that passes all understanding. Like we're okay with it. We understand if we're facing it and we have cancer, it's going to be okay because Christ is with us and he's never promised to forsake us. And we can expect paradise when we close our eyes in death and breathe our last, right? We have a, a future hope to look forward to. Paul calls it the prize in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. This imagery of the Olympic Games and of running a race. And it reminds us that the Christian life has purpose, that we're heading in a certain direction, that we have a future filled with hope tied to the promises of God. The resurrection of the dead, an imperishable life, all we read of in places like 1 Corinthians 15. Even before that, to depart and be with Christ, Paul says, is far better than being here. So while we wait for the day of resurrection, we're in paradise with the Lord, a place described as being far better. So we're runners as Christians in this life, looking forward to this goal of becoming perfect in Christ, of being perfectly conformed to Christ in the context of knowing Christ. Paul is saying that Christians have a bright future in Christ. We're reminded of that this morning. United to him in death, but also in his resurrection. New life in Christ spiritually now, but there is more, much more to come imperishable body, sinless lives, and the chief blessing of all ushered into the immediate presence of Jesus Christ. The best experience in the world and that we'll ever have on this side of eternity is being in the presence of Christ, isn't it? Gatherings like this where he has promised to be in a special way with those gathered in his name, even if they're whittled down to just two or three. We've got a taste of it now, but we look forward to an abundance of it then. And Paul presses toward it. Certainly he's speaking and thinking about the future hope. And we're reminded by this of our amazing future in Christ, destined to be with him in glory forever and ever. So we're not to forget who we are, brethren. We're citizens of heaven, children of the living God, and in relationship to this world, we're pilgrims passing through. This is not our ultimate destiny. Our chief joy is not to be tied to the things of this world. Living in North America and in, and in this country, we can be tempted to be distracted from what our ultimate uh, end is and what the chief inheritance and blessing and possession we have and all of it is found in Christ and it's yet to come and we look forward to it and may 2023 be a year that our hope in this glory is increased and expanded and is helpful as we seek to live for the Lord Jesus but the third and last thing we want to look at is the Christian's life in verses 10 through 14. I don't know how many of you read this passage and you immediately say, well, you know, I totally get everything Paul's saying here. <laughs> I mean, I read this passage, I read this book again and again and again and again. And, and we still strive to, to try to, to understand, you know, what Paul is saying. What is it he's pressing forward to? What's he talking about laying hold of that which Christ laid hold of? Of him, So I'm not saying the things I'm about to say are the definitive commentary and explanation, but these are the things the Lord has put on my heart as I've studied this passage in relationship to the rest of this letter and so forth, and I share with you the light has given me thus, forth, uh, thus far. The Christian's life, verses 10 through 14, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So the first thing he wants us to know about him is his life is is tied to this desire to know Christ. This is what the Christian life is about. It's about knowing Christ. It's not about adopting a set of rules and regulations and to be outwardly, morally religious. It's not about attending church. It's not even about every day having our devotions. Well, why are you a Christian? Because I do my devotions every day and I go to church. That's not what it means to be a Christian. United to the definition of being a Christian is Christians know Jesus Christ. And he wants to know Christ, he says in this passage. And as we read this and other things, there are goals, these goals which Paul has for his life, I believe, that can be found in these verses. We find and we read of this ambition, Paul says. He describes it as the one thing I do. The one thing that drives him on a daily basis and that motivates his decisions. Verse 12, he speaks of that. He's running toward the finish line as a goal. Yes, ultimately that hope that is yet to be revealed that's coming and tied to the resurrection. But we read here, I believe, of daily goals, of a way of life, of how the apostle thinks and how he seeks to live his life every day in these passages and in this verse. He has this language and uses it of of pressing on and of laying hold of something and of reaching forward. And he's describing the way he lives, isn't he? Verse 9, the first thing he speaks about, again, is his goal in this life is to know Christ. Now here's the question. How do you get to know Christ on a deeper level? How does your knowledge of Christ expand and increase? Paul's going to tell us in a minute how that happens for him, right? Is it an intellectual process? If if I listen to 10 sermons a day and read my Bible for two hours a day, is that the way I'm going to come to know Christ? Is it simply intellectual? It does involve the intellect. I'm not you know, taking away from the mind. But it is, is it simply just learning about him, reading the Gospels and learning things about Jesus Christ? Is that knowing Christ? Like we would know a history book. Like kids, you would know vocabulary. Maybe some of you have a vocabulary test this week. Knowing that list, memorizing that list, memorizing facts about Jesus Christ, knowing the story of Jesus Christ, knowing that the Bible's about Jesus Christ, knowing that Jesus Christ was born in... Bethlehem, knowing his parents' name. Is that knowing Christ? Knowing things about Christ? How do we grow in our knowledge of Christ? Is it simply by reading? Is it by creating monasteries and going off into the wilderness and separating ourselves from the rest of the world? Is it by never getting married and being single so this way I can read as much as I want and listen to sermons as much as I want, read as many books as I want and have a 10,000 volume library that tells me all about Jesus and I can spend my life reading about that? Is that how we come to know Christ? He wants to know Christ. That's his goal. How does that happen? We'll read verse, verse 10. That I may know him... And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Power of his resurrection. He knows Christ more and more as he's more and more conformed to the death of Christ. He knows Christ more and more as he seeks to live for Christ And in the process and in the path of living for Christ, suffers for Christ. He knows Jesus more and more through his experience as he interacts with a sinful world. 
through his experience as that world responds to his message. Some of them don't like what Paul's going to preach, and they beat him with rods, as they did in Philippi, and he's cast into prison. And he's like, in those experiences, I am knowing Christ more and more. The power of Christ is coming upon me in those circumstances and in those experiences. And I'm fellowshipping with Jesus as I live for Jesus. The grace and power of Christ falls upon us as we seek to live for Christ. That's what he's saying. As he seeks to be conformed to the death of Christ and suffers for Christ, he will know the power of his resurrection to support him in suffering, to make him sing in prison. How is it that Paul could sing in prison after being beaten? The power of Christ was coming upon him. And he was experiencing the power that Christ experienced as he, was, as he suffered. And as he lived to serve others. And when the power came upon him, joy came upon him. We shouldn't have joy in suffering, right? We shouldn't have joy when we've been beaten for Christ. But that was Paul's experience. As he was conformed to the death of Christ. Power to be beaten and whipped. Inward power to live and suffer for Christ that comes directly from Christ. We don't come to know Christ in a vacuum or by ourselves. We come to know Christ as we interact with other people in the service of Christ. As we interact with the world. As we interact with the church. As we interact and serve our families and serve our spouse and serve our children. As we go out and do our jobs. In other words, if we want to know Christ on a deeper level, we got to interact more with people. And we got to interact with them in a way that pleases the Lord and, and would be in a way that he's called us to act. And a way that he's called us to live. The second thing we find here about his life and, and Christian living, he is daily, Paul, pressing forward to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of him. Now, Paul says, why has God saved us? In Romans 8, he says, we were predestined, we were called and saved to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We were saved to be brought into a relationship with God through Jesus and to be changed, to be conformed powerfully into the image of Christ, to become more like Christ. To think more like Jesus, as we read of in Philippians 2, right? And in other places. Why did Jesus save Paul? What did he call him for? What, what did he lay hold of Paul for? We read of it in Acts 9. Because Jesus himself reveals it to Ananias, right? When he tells Ananias about Saul coming to him and he wants him to, to help him. But Ananias is nervous because he heard about Saul. This is a guy who's coming to arrest us and bind, on, and bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. I am calling Saul, Paul. I am going to change him. And this man is going to be my instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. That's going to be his calling. That's why Christ laid hold of the apostle, right? To be an apostle of Jesus Christ. To be a messenger to bear his name to the Gentiles. And then he says in verse 16, For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Jesus laid hold of Paul for the cause of preaching the gospel and suffering for his name. And Paul was really clear about what God had laid hold of him for. But he says, I press to lay hold of that for which Christ lays hold of me. He daily seeks, in other words, to take up his cross and follow Christ. What is the cross? When Jesus says that to his disciples, the cross is the thing, the call, the will that the Lord laid on the apostle. 
what he called him to do, what purpose he saved him for, what jobs he gave him to do, what his position and title would be, what his job would be, the thing he was laid hold of for, his calling as an apostle, and to experience suffering. And the question we ask is, What is our cross? Now, we're not all called to be apostles. That call is over. There are no more apostles being called to be apostles. If people say they are, don't listen to them. They don't know the truth, and the truth needs to set them free, and they're trying to put you in bondage to what they say because they're trying to tell you that they have the same authority as the apostles do. Like the popes of Rome. That's what they believe. There are no more apostles. Nobody's called to be an apostle. That calling is over. That job function is over. It's been fulfilled. The foundation of the church is laid. And we have the foundation in the scriptures perpetually kept for us, preserved by us, by the grace of God. But what is the will of the Lord for us? To serve him and follow him in every area of our lives. Jesus comes to each of us in salvation and he says, follow me. Follow me. And for each of us, that may look specifically different. But thank God we have the mind of Christ revealed for us in the pages of Scripture that explain for us what his will for us is as a father, as a mother, as a husband and wife, as a church member. Right? What is Christ's will for me? See, Christianity is becoming a slave to Jesus Christ. It's to relate to Jesus as as Paul did. What does Paul call Jesus? My Lord. It's a very personal thing, isn't it, salvation? It's not a religion, it's a relationship. You are called to follow Christ. You're called to obey Him and to give your life for Him and to live for Him. And the primary question we should be concerned with as we take up our cross and follow Christ is what would the Lord have me do? What kind of husband does Jesus want me to be? What kind of wife does Jesus want me to be? What kind of child does Jesus want me to be? How does he want me to talk to my parents, to interact with my parents? Should I listen to them? Should I dishonor them? Should I disrespect them? Should I talk about them behind their back? Should I say evil things about them in my heart and mind where no one else can see? What is the cross? What is your calling that you're going to aspire to, that you're going to press toward? It's God's will for you. It's God's will for me. What gifts has he given us in the church? Don't worry about the gifts he hasn't given you. Think about what Christ has called me to do. How does he want me to serve these people in this church? Here's a great time to ask this question of yourself. When you're tempted to leave a church, well, I mean, you know what you want, okay? But here's the ultimate question. What does Christ want you to do? Why does Christ want you to leave? Do you have a good answer for that? Why does he want you to go to so-and-so church? Do you have a good answer for that? What would Christ have me do? I think leaving a church, a very serious thing. It brings ramifications on you and your family. It is exceedingly important, especially if you've been interlocked with the church for decades You better better be very slow to move on unless there is a clear guidance from the Lord in the context of a multitude of counselors and clear direction that you can unashamedly and without guilt and in the open explain to the people you're leaving. What does the Lord want me to do? makes me very slow when I consider my own experience in Catskill, stepping down from the eldership, and, you know, having to serve the family in, in certain ways a little bit more at that time in our lives, five or six years ago, but, but you just, it is so difficult to step out of a position of leadership after you've been in it for 13 or 14 years. And it's not because you have this desire to be in a position of power. 
but you've served the church faithfully, you've sought to serve it faithfully, not without sin, of course, but you've sought to, to serve God's people, and they relate to you in a certain way, then they have to try to relate to you in a different way, and that whole process is very difficult. And it would be much easier to just leave and go somewhere else and not have to work through it. But here's the question that kept me anchored to that place. What would Jesus have me do? And it's not our will, but his will be done. He will give grace to handle those difficulties. He will give power to do his will. See, that's always the way to know God's power. You seek and pray to be in his will. Right? Even if it brings suffering and difficulty. He can supersede that. Right? He can carry you through that. So that's the cross. And that's what Paul is saying. I press toward this. This is my zeal. This is my ambition. This is my desire. Right? Daily pressing to lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. What Christ's will is for me. That I want to embrace and I want to give myself to it on a daily basis. Seek to be the best husband I can be, the best father I can be, the best churchman I can be. And you may not know. You know what? Ask your wife, spouses, husbands. You really want to be more Christ-like in 2023? Sit down with your wife and look her in the eye with sincerity and genuineness and say, Honey, I want to be more like Christ as your husband. Can you, don't overwhelm me, can you give me one or two things that you see that I may not see, the eye doesn't see itself? And if you can't come up with something today, you know, think about it. Wives to your husbands, how can I serve Christ better as your wife? Children to your parents. Parents, how about with your kids? Or maybe with your spouse. Honey, how can I be a better dad? How can I be a better mom? Pray about it. Aspire to it, right? You know, come to the come to the people in the church. How can I serve better here? I don't feel like I'm being used. You know what? Take the membership list and start calling that one member a day. Ask them how they're doing. How can I pray for you? Something I can help you with. I can't do a lot, but maybe some need you have, I could, I could help. What can I pray for you about? And then when you ask for prayer requests, you get insight into maybe what their needs are, and then the backup plan comes to actually meet a practical need, right? Yeah. Call every church member. You don't feel like you're being used? I'm sure there are tons of things that you could do. Put the interests of others before your own, right? Have this mind in you. Here's the attitude we should have. I am among you people. This is my goal as a Christian member of this church. I want to be among you as a man who serves. Like Jesus was, right? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? The one who says, well, I'm not going to do that because so-and-so member never did that. And you start doing something and then you stop doing something because I'm the only one doing it. Nobody else cares to pitch in. He was greatest in the kingdom is the greatest servant of all, right? Jesus who took up the basin and the towel because nobody else would and washed the feet of his disciples. He saw a need and he met the need, even though the other guy should have did it. But he served and he washed the feet of his disciples. I mean, it breaks your heart, doesn't it? You just want to jump into the pages of Scripture and into history and take the towel from Jesus. But we would have been just like him. See, the proneness of the human heart, the remaining sin we have to battle, is all about selfishness and self. Right? It's all about us. What am I getting? What am I receiving? Here is the way of Christ. You are more blessed when you give than when you receive. When you serve, you are more blessed than being served. In giving than in receiving, right? So this is what his passion was. Now he knows he will never pursue, he will never achieve perfect conformity to Christ in this life, but his passion is to make progress and to keep running forward. See, the fact that we'll never be perfect in this life shouldn't stop us from pursuing perfection and pursuing Christ's likeness, right? He keeps walking. He keeps running. He keeps pursuing it, even though he knows he'll never achieve it in this life. He's very clear here, right? 
And he's also very clear about this. He's not doing this to be saved. He's already saved. Right? He was saved on the road to Damascus when he was on his way to imprison and kill Christians. He had that heart and desire to kill Christians, not help Christians. And Jesus saved him in that condition. And then changed him, right? But because he was saved, because Christ died for his sins, because he came to realize who Jesus is and the value of what Christ did, he gave up his whole life to follow Christ. Not to be saved, but because he was saved. Never confuse those two things. We pursue perfection not to be saved, but because we have been. Because that is the call that Christ my Lord has placed upon me. He's already our Lord. You don't do things so that he'll continue being your Lord. He doesn't need our obedience. Bless God, he receives our imperfect obedience by his grace as a compassionate father receives and accepts the imperfect obedience of their son or daughter. We just love to see their heart to want to obey, even if it's not perfect. Don't we, parents? Don't you love to see that heart? That's the way God looks upon us. Church is not a place where we're to feel guilty. We're to feel relief from that because of Christ and thankful that he accepts our imperfect obedience. Well, how is he seeking to know Christ and press forward? Well, clearly the imagery is, is athletic, like a runner. But not just any runner, a runner who wants to win. There's a difference. You know, we say this about the sports my kids are in. Because sometimes, you know, my kids are just, I'm so competitive, my wife's competitive. So what do two people competitive get when they get married and have kids? All right? Like super ultra competitiveness, okay? And they get frustrated because most of them, I have one who's not an athlete, okay? And I won't point that person out to you. But she, oh, there we go. I just gave it up. You got a 50% shot of guessing who it is. Her interests lie in other places, okay? So my kids, especially the, the wrestlers, I'll, I'll use them as an example. Dad, you know, these people, these wrestlers, they're not running as hard as they should. They're not working as hard as they should. And the coach had a great saying, you know, the sport sometimes is better for the kid than the kid is for the sport. Right? Not everyone participating has the same energy and drive to win. Some just like the camaraderie. They just like to be other, with other kids. They just want to be part of a club because they, they don't feel connected to anything. They get an identity. They get encouragement. They get, you know, hey, great job, whatever the case may be. They don't want to win the tournament. They don't want to win the states. They just like wearing the jersey. They just like wearing the sweatshirt, right? Paul's not like that, though, here. He wants to win. This is how he runs. This is how he lives. And he's saying it out for an example for each of us. Run the Christian life, and I preach this to myself, as one who wants to win for Christ. Win the race in your life, whatever that looks like, your callings, your circumstances. This is the desire and heart he has. Verse 13, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. I have not achieved it yet, what I press on to daily, but one thing I do, and what do we find out from that language? That he is decided, and he's single-minded, and he's determined. The one thing I want is to be like Jesus. And we have to be like that. We have to be decided. We have to really want it. You know, I would like to lose 20 pounds. But I don't really want it yet. Why? You know, I've curbed my eating habits a little bit. But they're not where they should be, right? The athlete, if they want to win, they have to be strict. They have to count their calories. They have to exercise so much a day. They have to do different things. They've got to order their life in such a way that when they get to the starting line, they're going to win the race, right? People like CrossFitters, Matt Fraser, Tia Toomey. Matt Fraser comes in second one time at the world competition for CrossFit. And he couldn't stand it. He was so upset with himself. Most people will be glad just to, just to attend the CrossFit games out of... Tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people who compete in this every year. Just to attend and make it to that level is an achievement. No, no, no. Number two, it was as if he came in last. Because he wanted to win. And he knew that how he trained was not consistent with winning. So the next year, what do you think he did? He trained till his 
eyeballs fell out and his legs fell off, or at least it felt like that, and he came in first for the next five years. And he came in first by huge margins. No one could touch him. And now he, he runs an organization. Hard work pays off. Right? This is what we're talking about. This is the mentality of the Apostle Paul. And we can pray for this, for this single-minded determination and passion. He really wants to pray that God will give us the same heart for him, like these athletes, to strive to be determined. How does he run? Secondly, he forgets what lies behind. Now, in everything I've said, and I know we're getting to the hour here, maybe this is going to be the one thing you remember. I don't know. I think it's the one thing we struggle with as Christians in our Christian life. We find it hard to forget what lies behind, don't we? We get crippled and paralyzed by past failures, by past experiences. We get crippled and fail, and, and, and we get crippled and paralyzed by the fact that we haven't been doing our duty. Or, you know, we've not really tried to kill this sin with as much effort as, as we should. Prayer, other people helping us, whatever the case may be. And so we get discouraged, we get depressed, and we just don't pay attention to it. We give up. Because we're so focused on what lies behind, we never move forward, right? Paul doesn't want to go back to, the, to life without Christ. That's the first thing in the world. What are you going to do? I ask myself this. What, when, you're, when you're discouraged, what am I going to do? I'm so discouraged in my Christian life. Am I going to go back to the world? You know what the answer is every single time, no matter what condition I'm in? Absolutely no way. I am not going back. I'm going forward, right? So that's the first thing. Don't go back to the world. The world's not going to solve your problem. The world's not going to tickle your itch. The world's not going to do any of that. Scratch your itch, whatever, right? The world's not going to answer. We forget what lies behind. He forgets what progress he's made as well. You know, a runner of a marathon doesn't get to the 20th mile and look back, and he's ahead of the whole race and look back and just, wow, I can't believe it. Look at this map. I did this, I did that, I ran. And while he's taking, you know, joy in all the progress he made in the marathon, everyone passes him and he loses. He's got to keep running to the end, right? We can't look back on progress or things we've done for Christ in the past. We've got to forget that. Keep moving forward, right? He looks forward. Hey, he forgets past sins. This is so hard. Paul doesn't live in guilt for sins committed in the past. Guilt is like a shackle of Satan. He'll bind you with it. And he'll keep you bound for as long as he can. Even though you got the key. I know, I know. You're 30 years in the faith. You committed the sin again. Let me ask you, what are you going to do? You think it's going to please God to be guilty for a week? As I get older, I find myself praying, Lord, I know. Please forgive me and help me. I, 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 if you're going to cast me in hell, I can't control it. But all I know is I want to follow you and serve you and love you and live for you. Forgive me this sin and help me not to do this. Look forward. Don't dwell on past sins. Forget what lies behind. It cripples us from doing our duty, from serving God, from living for God. Christ has died for our sins. You are cleansed in the blood of Christ. You don't have to pay penance. God doesn't call you to live in guilt for a day or a week or a month, and then he'll forgive you as if, okay, you've suffered enough. I know it shouldn't happen. It's free and full grace, and we're not used to being forgiven like this. We're not used to being loved like this, but we are. It's amazing grace. It's amazing grace, isn't it? He forgets past offenses. You know, sometimes we get offended by somebody in the church or we go through an experience where we've been offended and we just dwell on that offense in the past and we can't get past it and we're shackled to it. Someone's done something to our life and now they're living in our head and we can't get them out, we can't forgive them. And it's bondage. And we've got to pray for grace to be released from that and forget the offenses of the past. I've heard of Christian men, godly servants of the church who've been crippled for 25 years after being great servants for God. Because of this, they just could not get past offenses or divisions. 
And we need grace to do that. Well, Paul also and lastly reaches forward. He reaches forward. Looking forward. The goals that Christ has given me daily, what are they? In my calling, in my circumstance. What is it? What's the cross look like? What's he calling me to do? How's he calling me to live? I wish I had more time, but we're out of time. How can I love him better in relationship to others? Think about your roles in your family. Husband, wives, we've talked about it. Children. What about at work? What kind of workman does he call us to be? What kind of church member does he call me to be? Servant of the church. What sin does he call me to kill? What duty does he call me to start walking in? To start, to pick up and begin walking in in 2023? What are the circumstances? How am I to face these circumstances and endure this sickness, endure this trial, endure this difficulty? Lord, how can I do this in a way that pleases you? That's reaching forward. That's, you know, setting a godly goal for yourself. Again, it's all not to be saved. It's because we have been saved. Our confidence alone is in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this time, and I pray that you'll use something from it to encourage your people and to help the unconverted and to be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.